Hi, Norm. Hi, Barbara. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I am well. So here we are again. We're going to continue the wonderful conversation with David Yeager. Um, we spent all oh, wonderful time with him learning about his work at the CBC, and we'd love to hear more about his work as a composer. It was hilarious because he was telling us these amazing stories, and the time flew by, and I realized we were an hour in before we'd even yes. got to half the material. So we're making a second episode. Bonus episode, no extra charge. Here we go. You are listening to New Musings on New Music, where Norm Adams and Barbara Pritchard converse with guests from the world of contemporary art music. We are exploring some of the fascinating ideas found there and trying to demystify the wild and wonderful music. David, in our last episode, um, you talked to us about your work at the CBC and with Winnipeg New Music and all sorts of uh, international stuff. Um, basically, I guess, in your role as an executive producer. And I want to swing things now to your role as a composer and all the other activities that you have been involved with. Can you tell us a bit about the beginnings of your compositional life and where it took you? I'm, I'm thinking of things like the Canadian Electronic Ensemble and other stuff like that. We'd, we'd love to hear some of that. It's so nice of you to ask, Barbara. I don't often get a chance to, to really go back to the beginnings. and uh, uh, I have to confess that as a kid, I did compose. Uh, <laughs> you know, I kind of thought, well, what kid doesn't? Yeah. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe not every, maybe not every kid. But, <laughs> uh, the funny thing was, I'll go back to my my high school days because I had studied uh, piano as a as a kid, and then I, I took an interest in in the organ uh, as a teenager, and in high school I got good enough on the organ that occasionally. The church organist, local church organist, when uh, he wanted to take a few weeks off, he would ask me, "Could I, could I take you know Sunday for him?" And uh, so I would. And uh, uh, being a kid in his teens and being kind of lazy, sometimes I just rather than learn a new piece, I just thought, "Oh, I just, I just make something up." <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So I, and and eventually I realized oh, this is actually easier <laughs> than than like doing the sweat and the, the the work, sweating out the work to 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 master a new piece. But uh, so uh, by the time I was in in university, I I had a you know a drawer full of scribbles things that I had written. I had once written a, a chorale prelude on um, the tune, Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. <laughs> it certainly dates me, nice. you know, back nice. to the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't, I was pretty uninhibited in what, what I might consider, you know, getting into. Uh, but the funny thing was, you know, I went to the University of Wisconsin uh, at Madison, which at the time was a very conservative school, and they had adopted a policy where uh, composition was only taught to graduate students. You know, and here, I mean, we're surrounded by, you know, musical greats. I don't know if the name Rene Leibowitz means anything to you. Mm. He was he was a colleague of Schoenberg. Uh, a composer as well, but also a conductor. Um, Rudolf Kolisch, the violist, mm -hmm. in the uh, and the form the the founder of the Alban Berg String Quartet. Uh, Kolisch was on on faculty at Madison, and he invited Leibowitz to come and be in residence. Uh, I remember um, as a I think a, a freshman or a sophomore singing in the the concert choir, University of Wisconsin, and. Uh, singing uh, Frieda auf Erden of Schoenberg, conducted by Rene Leibowitz. That was, <laughs> that was something. Uh, 
but still, I mean, they, they wouldn't teach undergraduates composition. Uh, so, um, and at the same time, I was, I, I'd actually been a kind of a science junkie in, in high school and uh, entered science fairs and, you know, I was, I was a, a kind of a gear nut. And uh, so I got interested in electronic music, you know, and, and the, the thing was, in Wisconsin, uh, one of the great parts of that culture was that they got into public radio very early uh. in the game in the 1930s. And uh, I, I heard John Cage as a kid, you know, I heard John Cage interviewed. And, uh, you know, this was, this, this was a big deal. This kind of uh, was uh, an inspiration for me to, to dig, you know, dig deep inside in the back reaches of, of my consciousness and find my my own personal creativity. And, and it was a kind of a, a permission to do that. And I do also remember when uh, I attended uh, uh, the organist, Virgil Fox, was brought in to inaugurate the new Cassavant organ at St. Norbert's Abbey in Deep Here, Wisconsin. <laughs> and Fox played the Ascension Suite of uh, Olivier Messiaen, you know. Good heavens. Here, and, you know, here I'm a, you know, just a sniveling teenager. And this, <laughs> I, I saw colors when he played this, you know. I'm, mm. I'm not, I'm not a, a, a synesthete, you know. But, but I mean, this was a, a, an astounding uh, novel, uh, inspiring uh, experience for me. And uh, so, you know, bit by bit, I think I, I started to, to, to develop as, as, a, as a budding composer, but without direction, without instruction. And so <clears throat> when I became a, a Woodrow Wilson Fellow at the end of, end of my undergraduate career and, and was invited to the University of Toronto, I, I saw the chance to, uh, to work in, a, in what was then already a famous, world famous electronic music studio. I saw this as a really a, a great opening in my in my creative life. So uh, I accepted that invitation. I moved to Toronto and uh, and never looked back. Stayed here, uh, loving it. Actually, you know, my Anglophile, my 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 Anglo American mother. Uh, did equip me, you know, and sort of through through family ties, I, I did have this kind of English <laughs> uh, American quality. I felt I thought coming to Toronto was was you know a a, a pretty good place. It was a natural fit, a, a really good fit. Yeah, uh, it was a big city. It was uh, uh, culturally diverse. Uh, but safe, you know. <laughs> this is this is what the things people always say about about the Toronto of the of the seventies. I mean, this is all about to change, but uh, and 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 to become much more interesting. I was I arrived here and uh, I was I was ready to uh, let my creative juices, uh, you know, uh, flow. And uh, so between hanging out in the electronic music studio. And, and having my, my composition classes with John Weinswag and, and meeting other composers like, you know, Harry Summers, uh, uh, Harry Friedman, Norma Beecroft, um, Barbara Pentland, uh, uh, Oscar Morowitz, John Beckwith, uh, you know, a long, long list of, of composers I just started hanging out with. And uh, uh, I was loving it because this was, this was, well, as they say, uh, in being in sitting in the catbird seat, <laughs> an old baseball expression. <laughs> but of course, uh, hanging out in the studio, I met I met my colleagues, who uh, Jim Montgomery, Larry Lake, and uh, David Grimes, and the collegiality uh, uh, of being together and working in the in a shared facility like the studio. You know, it was, it was inevitable that we would eventually say, well, you know, we got to take this stuff on stage. We got to, 
we got to figure out a way to uh, to make electronic music live, because of course, as as you know, budding artists ourselves, we all had performance dimensions to our to our backgrounds. And the funny thing is that the, the Canadian Electronic Ensemble was a concept that we came up with just by associating ourselves together in the studio, but you know, and wanting to play live. But the truth of the matter was, we all were brass players. Larry, Larry Lake and I both played trumpet. Jim Montgomery was a, a fine horn player, and David Grimes played the trombone. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that that can take you in a number of different directions if you know brass players. <laughs> it just, just as easily been a brass quintet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've forgotten the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so... Um, you know, I graduated with a, a master's degree at the end of 1972, and uh, in uh, you know, I wrote a, a work for for John Weinzweig, an orchestral composition as my my master's thesis, and uh, and by that time we already knew we were going to be a, a, an electronic ensemble, so both sort of the worlds of serious composition and and, and of experimentation uh, were front of mind. And, and then, of course, I got hired at CBC, uh, which kind of opened a number of other doors. Uh, so I, I guess I felt there was no shortage uh, of influences. Uh, Gus Shimaga, while he was running the studio, he, he invited Stockhausen to come to the studio. You know, and, and I remember seeing Stockhausen, and he had come into the studio, and he'd set up a pulse, like a quite a, a loud constant pulse and he had it spinning around the room quadraphonically and listening to it and just staring at and and I, I remember asking him some kind of probably very naive question about you know uh his compositional method and he 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 didn't look at me he answered my question staring off into the distance saying i am a radio to the cosmos <laughs> nice <laughs> and i said i said Oh, uh, you know, I, I, I noticed that you're, you, you don't say in your compositions, I don't, you don't say opus one, opus two. You just say number one, number two. I said, have you actually got this all planned out? Like, do you know where he said, of course. <laughs> <laughs> very rational, very intentional, very, very strategic. But yeah. he also yeah. he also invited Bob Moog to come up from Tumensburg, New York, and uh, Vladimir Ushachevsky from from New York City, and so uh, I found myself in a real kind of crucible of of new creation, and 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 I loved it, and and of course I I was married in 1972 uh, to I married. Sally Fisk from Deep Pier, Wisconsin, <laughs> brought her to Toronto, and we started raising our family. You know, I, I, here I was now, um, an aspiring creative artist. I, I had a I had a permanent full time job, uh, <clears throat> starting to raise a family, experiencing the inevitable uh, time crunch. The I would think true true difficult. Uh, situation of trying to trying to just protect enough time to to be a creative person, while there's all this other stuff that that needed to be done. Uh, I mean, the work itself at CBC was creative. <clears throat> Don't get me wrong, but in terms of my own composing, and you know, I balanced it pretty well. I kept I kept everything going until sort of the mid '80s, the mid 1980s. I was still able to 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 compose. So one of my most broadcast works, it's, it's not performed that often, but I wrote a, a piece for William Aid called Quivi Sospiri. Uh, this is in 1981. And, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a high school student, I had read The Divine Comedy, where in those days, that's what you did in, in high school literature. And uh, I... I was struck by one canto in the whole huge poem. 
in, in, in the very first book, Inferno, Canto 3. I don't know. I can't expect that people would just know what this was. But in the third canto of Inferno, Virgil, the guide, and, and Dante, the author, they enter the gates of hell. So in, in the, this third canto, they enter the pitch black, complete darkness. And I noticed, I just happened to notice, it's the only moment in this entire enormous poem when Dante uses absolutely no visual imagery. It's all, it's all sonic. He talks about, <clears throat> he talks about the size of thousands of souls, lost souls, sighing, quivi, sospiri. And I thought, what a great opportunity for a composer, you know, to put that into a, a sonic poem. And, you know, I, I knew I was writing for William Aid, who is, of course, a great, a great interpreter of romantic repertoire, you know, Chopin and Liszt and, and uh, Schumann. And, I thought, okay, I got For him, I have to write. I have to harness this great technique that he has, uh, and so I wrote a very uh, bravura, virtuoso piano part, and uh, uh, accompanied by synthesizers. So in that in that in that period of time, 1981, the polyphonic synthesizers were were just starting to get designed. We were still performing with, with basically monophonic instruments. I mean, mind you, that single note you pressed might be extremely complex, you know, with with ring modulation and filter sweeps and 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 pulse modulation and, you know, all sorts of processing of the sound, but still basically one note at a time. So in my score, I, I, I scored for four synthesizers and piano. So it's like basically piano and quartet. Uh, but with the electronic voices rather than actual notes. So uh, we gave the premiere of Quivi Sospiri at the Heliconian Hall in, uh, in the Yorkville uh, neighborhood of, of Toronto. And um, this is a piece that uh, we then took on tour and uh, Karen Kieser learned it. She, you know, by being Larry Lake's wife, you know, Karen often came along on the tours. Um, in 1985, we, we went to, we were invited to the Holland Festival, uh, and Monica Gaylord was our, our pianist. And, and eventually, uh, Christina Petrosca-Quillico uh, got a hold of the piece and was very, very intrigued by it. And it is with Christina that uh, I made the first recording of Cuivi Sospiri, uh, which by that time, by the way, let's see, this was in 1992. We were celebrating our 20th anniversary by recording uh, our first CD uh, as the Canadian Electronic Ensemble. CD was called Catbird Seat, <laughs> which is right. yeah, named named for a piece that of collective composition that we'd all uh, come up with together. But in this album. We each had our individual pieces as well as our, our collective composition. So the first recording of Quivi Sospiri was, uh, by, by that time we had, uh, I had programmed the whole score under sequence in a computer. Uh, and, and so I was able to do it as a duo with, with Christina playing with me on, on the computer. Uh, God love her. I mean, she she played this piece so brilliantly. She really got caught up in the the whole atmosphere of the piece. She, her interpretation was everything I could have ever ever wished for. In 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 what what resulted from those notes that I had that I had written down, and uh, she's actually released this piece three different times. There was oh. that 1992 production. Uh, then she did it again. Uh, actually, so when digital, <laughs> when digital music kind of took over the electronic field, I then uh, programmed the whole thing with uh, with different digital voices. So we had a, a second version, and uh, which she released on a center discs recording, 
uh, was a two album set what was it called other worlds where she'd done some uh, on one disc it's more kind of classically based contemporary works and on the second disc electronic inspired pieces and so and then and then she's just released it again a third time on the, the Navona label which is actually the, the first time in my life that I've had my music appearing on, on an American record label so um, yeah, with the, the Canadian Electronic Ensemble, here we had a vehicle. We were giving concerts. We were able to uh, uh, get Arts Council support. We were able to hire musicians, uh, write for them. You know, this became a kind of a, 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 a cauldron of creativity for all of us. We all, you know, responded by, by, by composing our, our own works. And, and as I said earlier, you know, I was still working full-time at CBC. Uh, and so all, all of this creative activity was done by, by dint of, you know, basically stolen moments. <laughs> you know, just time, time I, I found uh, probably sacrificing something else yeah. at the same time. Uh, you know, my family will tell me, well, you know, when we celebrated our 20th anniversary, Sally would say, well, actually it's only been 10 because he's only been here half the time. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, by the mid-80s, mid uh, the production work, Two New Hours was uh, a program that we'd started in 1978 and it, and it grew, it, uh, it succeeded, it, was, it became more than a full-time occupation. I was working, you know, 10, 11 hour days, seven days a week. Basically, the composition for me sort of had to take a, a bit of a back seat. So I started telling myself, oh, so that that piece for for violin and, and percussion, you know, I'm going to do that. I'll just put that on the shelf for now. You know, when when I have a little more time on my hands, maybe maybe even in retirement, you know, we'll we'll, we'll do that someday, and or I'd get another idea, and you know, for uh, for for a trio or or for some combination of orchestration, I just put that on the shelf because yeah, we'll we'll get to that, uh, and you know, you never know how true that became because actually I pretty much stopped composing. I mean, the, for me, the, the the CEE, we all got busy in our in our various professional lives, and we continued to perform. We we still perform together, but the activity became more difficult to to program, as as the time approached when when I knew I, you know, was finished in broadcasting. Partly because they canceled my show, after you know many years of declining budgets and cutting my staff and. Eventually, uh, you know, the writing was on the wall that they, they were going to cancel the show, and by God, they did <laughs> in 2007. And, uh, you know, by that time, I had been uh, the delegate of the CBC at the International Rostrum of Composers for 25 years, starting in 1977. Uh, and then my last six years was uh, served as president of the International Rostrum of Composers. It was actually a great six years. It was a time when uh, by being president, I was involved in the organization, in the, the agenda of the rostrum. And, uh, and actually, an added bonus was that as president, I didn't vote. So CBC had to send Sandra Thacker, my colleague from Winnipeg, as the delegate. So there were, there were a couple of us, you know, going to Paris or Vienna or, or, or Dublin, wherever we, we happened to have the, our annual meetings. Not to mention that, you know, a French network person too. So uh, those six years I was able to bring together my colleagues from other countries, you know, Radio France, uh, Swedish radio, uh, ORF, the Austrian radio, uh, uh, all, all these uh, different sister organizations uh, public radios in different countries and you know we, we were doing some fantastic networking we were getting uh, Canadian works programmed in, in in Vienna or in or in Budapest or in in, in Paris 
people, young Canadian composers like uh, Abigail Richardson and, and Brian Current, they they both won first place in in the vote at the rostrum, and Radio France uh, commissioned new works by them, and uh, you know we were we were very very close to a, reaching a, a point where the the network of of, of exchanges and, and kind of you know strategic programming alliances were being made such that Canadian music was was coming much closer to being on on the, the front page as it were uh, this is when they, they decided to, to cancel two new hours and, and and we and they not only canceled two new hours they we also withdrew from the rostrum they started uh, this is they is you know senior management at CBC they started uh, uh, selling off our, our production resources and uh, getting rid of the people we needed to to make original production. You know, I could I could see the writing was on the wall. I was I was gonna have my next chapter coming up pretty soon. So, <laughs> in 2012, I I informed the radio music department that uh, uh, this was going to be my last year. Of course, when you make that kind of you know, life decision, major life decision. Well, you deal with uh, a lot of memories. You deal with, uh, uh, you know, thoughts coming to the surface that you'd stored back on those those things you'd shelved. <laughs> I tell mm. you, those shelved projects just started coming off the shelves like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I started composing like like there was no end to it, and still isn't. Uh, you know, in the last uh, ten years since since retirement, I, I I've I've written, gosh, I've probably written over a hundred works. Uh, admittedly, a lot of them of a of a smaller scale, uh, partly because one of the uh, objectives I set for myself was. You know, I'd spent all this time working in electronics, uh, doing, you know, really complicated music, composing works with very unusual orchestration. Uh, I thought, you know, the thing I never had a chance to really focus on was uh, melody. I mean, the simplest of things in music, you know, melody, rhythm, uh, harmony. Uh, I chose melody, and I decided, well... <coughs> This was something that I just had kind of ignored. I mean, I'd, I'd written, certainly, I had certainly had to write melody in the past. I knew, I knew what it was all about, but I'd actually never really focused on what makes it tick, what makes it good, what makes it uh, work. So I started just, my, my first inspiration was, was uh, well, I wanted to write a piece for solo cello, Norm. Uh, the cello was talking to me, and I just thought, yeah, uh, that's a beautiful instrument. There's so many resources, so many things you can do with the cello, almost too many. And actually, mm -hmm. that was a problem. I, I started this piece about three different times and, and, and ran up against a wall. And then the, the penny dropped. I started, you know, I'm a, my wife and I are, are art collectors, and I've always really loved hanging out with painters and loved, loved going to galleries and uh, I'm very fond of visual art. Uh, one of our daughters is herself a visual artist and I mean our kids all grew up in a house full of large canvases. There's one behind me <laughs> by Carol Sutton. So I was just browsing kind of aimlessly through catalogs and I suddenly discovered John Constable. So Constable lived from 1776 to uh, 1837 and uh, he amongst many other things he, he he was a very very fine landscape painter. He came from Suffolk in, in East Anglia in England uh, uh, you know which is which is a very flat part of England and it's near the sea, well, like every place in England, practically. Clearly, he picked up on the fact that the skyscapes over Suffolk 
were extraordinary. And so I discovered that in, the, in 1820, he had started to do these cloud studies. And just clouds, like nothing else. No landscape, just, and, and I, I, it struck me that what, what he saw in the sky and what he painted in these studies was very close to like abstract art, abstract expressionist. I mean, he was, it was figurative in as much as you could tell these were, these were clouds as one sees in the sky. But the other thing that he triggered in these, it, that triggered in me seeing these works was the kind of endless variation uh, I call it linear variation in this case because it's you know it's it's painted on a flat surface it's made up of you know lines and spaces and textures and volumes and so on but you know the penny dropped I thought well look uh, if you if you look at a, a real life cloud you watch it for a few minutes you see that it it starts to vary it starts to you know and it's, it's never to be repeated and uh, I was reminded back in my student days at Wisconsin I had been reading uh, Schoenberg essays and at one point I don't remember even the exact source uh, which essay it was but he came up with this concept of of endless variation so I took me back to this, this struggle I was having with this cello piece. Uh, why don't I, why don't I shape, why don't I create and shape a melodic line that is endlessly varying, just like we see in these cloud studies of, of, of John Constable. And it was just enough of a catalyst. It was enough of a kind of a, a model, kind of, you know, a, uh, uh, a key uh, to inspire where I could take this and I finished that uh, that cello piece Constable's Clouds I called it and uh, uh, it's simply a single line unaccompanied and, and it's uh, from beginning to end it's just, it's just a series of, of, of variations um, and the, the melodies that I wrote were constructed not in reference to any particular tonality or any particular uh, chord sequence, harmonic sequence, but in intervallic relationships. So I suppose it's kind of Schoenbergian in that respect too. Uh, just like, um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd work with a couple of intervals and how they interacted and then, and then you know, change them change them gradually and just through this process of variation uh, we, we, we went through a, a, an arc of music for the, for the cello and of course along the way I could explore all these extended registers of the cello uh, I could ask for all kinds of uh, you know textural you know playing techniques uh, growly stuff in the in, in the bass register and, and harmonics and Oh, magnificent timbral variations one, one can get from, from the cello. And, and if I didn't do everything, that was okay. If I didn't cover every possible sound <laughs> the cello could make, that was okay. You know, because I, I had this, this, this model. I had this kind of, uh, thanks to Constable, I, 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 I felt I had permission to just do it free, do it freely. I mean, this particular piece... Uh, Joseph Petrich heard uh, he heard a recording of uh, Winona Zelenka playing it, and he said he said David, there's an accordion piece in there. <laughs> really? <laughs> he says, could, could I borrow the score? And you know, I gave him the score, and he came back and he he booked a meeting with me with his accordion and he said look you could you could do this in octaves and you could put this in the, in this register and and you could you could change the registration here and and uh, and would i be willing to do that for him and I, and i said okay yeah uh, and he actually gave me a palette of of accordion effects and accordion configurations that he thought would would work well on the framework of this this cello piece so uh, 
I thought this this is pretty interesting, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So so I wrote uh, uh, this uh, kind of very expanded version for 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 him. He took it on tour. This was in nine, sorry, in uh, in twenty nineteen, just before the pandemic. Mm. He had a tour uh, of university campuses in Poland. And so he took this score and, and, and put it on all of his concerts. And uh, he came back, he says, this piece really works well. You know, I, I, I love playing it. People respond to it. Um, but you know what? I think, it's, I think it needs something else. <laughs> I said, you're not thinking electronics, are you? He says, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Uh, I think we could do that. <laughs> you came to the right guy, so um, so I, I went to my uh, to my laptop and, and, and uh, actually I used the same principle uh, as I had done in the very first in the cello version the same idea of linear variation. So I created a, like a track out of many different uh, types of of electronic voices and. And, and, you know, when you say electronic voices, this can be like a whole texture, a whole kind of sy symphonic, uh, uh, you know, sonically, it can be very full voice kind of uh, audio. So I just kind of, having been through the experience of first writing the cello piece and then, and then expanding it for the accordion, and now adding this palette of electronic sounds, I, I felt I was in familiar territory. You, you, you know, and, and this is not original to me. You remember with Berio when he wrote his sequenzas, uh, or maybe you don't remember, but what, what Berio did, he wrote these series of unaccompanied solos, I think there's 12 of them, sequenzas, for, for, for flute, for, for the voice, uh, for, uh, there's one for accordion as well. So then he wrote the, uh, I think it started with the, uh, the oboe sequenza, then he wrote Chemin de, so he put a chamber orchestra around the solo. Mm. He called it Chemin de, and then he put an, later he put another layer, an orchestral layer around it, and Chemin toi. Uh, <laughs> and you know he talked about, you know, like an onion, like layers of an onion, mm. and yeah. so with Constable's Clouds, you know. Uh, I, I I was I was experiencing kind of a, a similar process, and I wasn't copying it, but I, I I was mindful of the fact that this this there's nothing to stop us from doing this. <laughs> there's no yeah. you know no no sacred ground we're tre treading on here. Uh, just just do it, and so wouldn't you know it? Uh, so Joseph starts playing this piece and. Uh, He's now recorded it, and it's actually just been released. Uh, so we called it Spirit Cloud, and uh, that was his suggested title, and I, I was I was good with that. Sounded, uh, you know, it's a spirited piece. It it came out of enthusiasm from the performer, who had heard something, it triggered a reaction, and the you know opening up the the a window of possibility, and so Spirit Cloud, but. Wouldn't you know it? It happened again. Uh, a young violist, Elizabeth Reed, had heard both pieces, the cello piece and the accordion piece, and 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 she she wondered whether well, couldn't there be one for viola? <laughs> <laughs> so I transcribed the cello original. You know, as often happens with viola, you know they get a lot of their repertoire from from yeah. cello. Same uh, strings. Yeah, same strings and. Uh, and then I borrowed from the track for the, from the accordion, and so I gave her the score and I gave her the track, and she started playing with it. And then she said, "Well, it would be really good if you know there are certain very striking effects in the uh, in the electronic part. Like, couldn't that be coordinated with this particular gesture? You know, in bar ninety five, you know, or wherever." <laughs> and uh, so I started layering more on it and, and positioning, intentionally positioning specific effects. Because in the accordion version, there's no 
it's it's a very free form thing that the two parts much like in the like the schoenberg duo for violin and, and piano they're independent they're two separate pieces overlaid mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. in in the accordion version it's a, it's an overlay and and besides going with joseph on that particular adventure of 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 expanding a pre-existing piece he also asked for and i gave him permission to improvise so at certain points okay. along uh, you know along the arc of the piece he opens it up and uh, liz was intrigued by this too she, you know can i improvise sure and so bit by bit i started layering more electronics basically responding to to her reactions it was like you know a feedback loop uh, mm -hmm. she liked mm -hmm. this i gave her that I like this. She, we talked about it, you know. So um, now we have a viola piece, and it's called "Constable in the Spirit of the Clouds." <laughs> <laughs> so, which, which is also being released on the, on Redshift. Uh, Liz has has just sent the master off to the manufacturer uh, for her, uh, what will be a January release of uh, a recording of my viola music select i've written 18 pieces for viola you know at last wow. count we're still yeah. counting she chose a, a group of pieces and uh you know she got a canada council grant god love them we recorded this in in glenn Gould's studio i was able to produce this recording which she's calling conjuring <laughs> and uh so this will be released in January on, on Redshift. It's got uh, a little sonatina. Uh, it's actually called Sonata, Tristan and Isolde. But they're, they're three short movements. It's really more of a sonatina with piano. Then there's a full sonata, like a big piece. There's a group of six miniatures for unaccompanied viola based on the poetry of David Cameron. And I'm going to get to that. This is my transition to the next. You're segueing, I can tell. I am segueing. <laughs> but then she also has these three electronic pieces, including Favor, which I had written for Rivka Golani back in 1980, uh, and, and which was a piece that brought Liz to me in the first place. She had gotten a hold of, of Rivka's uh, recording on center discs, and it had been. Uh, kind of a, an, an important touchstone for her. You know, Liz, like many other violists, they, they, they hear that, that old, funny old piece and, and it, it touches it touches them and they, they want to do it. It's, it's something about that piece that's intangible. I can't quite put my finger on it, but uh, uh, a lot of violists feel that, you know, it's like a, a watershed that has to be breached. Uh, so, so she's recorded her version of, of Favor, and then there's a, a subsequent piece I wrote for Rivka Golani uh, called Saraband, because Rivka, Rivka finally got tired. The, the original piece, Favor, which is for amplified viola and a, and a network of delay circuits controlled by foot pedals to interact and create complex textures with just a single viola and uh, and all this processing. So even though this is my most performed piece, really, in spite of this complicated network of, of gear that you have to set up to make it, Rivka finally got tired of, of having to, to do all this setup. She said, couldn't you just like give me a version with tape? Like, you know, a track I can play against? And I, I said, well, you know, Rivka, it's just not the same piece if it's if it's that. <laughs> so yes. I said, but what I will do is I will use the same elements in a new piece. And I wrote I wrote Saraband. <laughs> and it starts with an unaccompanied, literally a Saraband, a, a, a piece in triple meter with a strong second second beat based on the traditional Spanish dance, the Saraband, back from the, the Baroque period, maybe maybe the Renaissance, I don't know, but traditional dance. Uh, and so I used the material from Favor and kind of 
started writing this, this sarabande, and, and bit by bit, as the piece over the course of the piece, favor the the the, the original source starts to penetrate, starts to evidence and emerge within this, such that when we get to the ending of the piece, which is this kind of very dramatic uh, cellarando and, and crescendo, with with the viola going just, you know, 100 miles an hour in the electronics kind of getting stronger and, and building. Um, so they both, both pieces actually end the same way. <laughs> They're kind of like, um, I guess you could consider them to be like a, a, a pair, you know, a, a diptych, as it were. Mm -hmm. So, um, so uh, this is this is Liz's record. By the way, another violist, a very fine violist, uh, Carol Gimble, simultaneously <laughs> wanted to record some of my viola music. Uh, very very different lineup of of repertoire. Uh, I mean, if you got a pool of 18 pieces, you know, you got a lot to play with there. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she too is, is releasing on Navona Records. This will come a little bit later, but uh, uh, a collection of, um, of acoustic, oh, entirely acoustic pieces. I, re I wrote another sonata for her. Also, um, a two-part piece called Lament and Defiance. Uh, she also plays the six miniatures, uh, as, as Liz does, the six miniatures on poetry by David Cameron. Then there are three songs for mezzo, viola, and piano, uh, uh, based on poetry of, wait for it, Carol Gimble. <laughs> Surprise! Nice. Uh, in, in, my, in my work with Carol, I, I stumbled across, actually, I think she very kind of privately, uh, this was her private secret that she she writes poetry and as we got to know one another better she revealed that uh, uh, here are some things that uh, might work as songs and I started sitting these songs and then she said could could there be viola <laughs> and so these little trios there's three of them uh, and uh, with uh, uh, sung by uh, mezzo soprano um, Marina Kaponskaya, I think is her name. Uh, she has sung at the Met. She's a, a, a fabulous mezzo. So this this recording is, is, is coming out as well. The common element here is poetry. All right, so going back to this idea that uh, I had to work on my, on my melodic skills, it was all well and good that I could be uh, so clever as to, uh, you know, use uh, like a graphic phenomenon, like painting and drawing as a, as a catalyst for, for melody. But eventually you're, you're going to, you're going to figure out that, well, if you're writing melody, someone's going to want to sing it. They're going to need some words. Uh, they could do vocalese for sure, but, uh, you know, you're probably going to get some inspiration from, from those words, if if you find some good ones, some words worth singing. I mean, I've actually always been a pretty voracious reader of poetry, but I like to say I'm also a very prolific forgetter of poetry, <laughs> because <laughs> between between you and me, if it doesn't have music, if I can't sort of see in those words, if it doesn't immediately present like a tune and harmony. And the musical shape, I'm gonna forget it. But if it does, like this poem of David Cameron, it goes. It's called a blessing. And I know this this poem by memory because I've been over it so many times. It's a short poem. I call a blessing down on your head. A shadow's moving in the oyster bed. I hear a whisper in the loudest room. I see an angel perched on my tomb. Angel, oh angel, put down your pen. Have I loved enough? Will I see her again?
I mean, you, you can't ignore the fact that this this strong, irresistible melody is is mm. held captive by those words. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw it as my my noble responsibility to to release the melody from from David's words. Um, so I was very lucky. I I had been introduced to David Cameron um, by his our mutual friend Sean Haldane. Um, I'll back up a little bit. The backstory is a fun one because uh, Sean Haldane, who by day is a neuropsychiatrist <laughs> and you know has a medical degree and and uh, but by night or by whenever he's not being that, you know, the, the man always has a pencil in his pocket and a notebook and he's constantly writing poetry. Um, I met Christina in a, I heard her singing Handel at the Arts and Letters Club in Toronto. She, her Handel is extraordinary. Her, her style, her, her voicing, her, uh, her interpretation of the character in, in Handel's opera is magical. Is Christina Haldane? Christina Haldane. Christina, yes, she sometimes Christina. goes by with her middle name, Christine Raphael Haldane. And uh, uh, daughter of Sean Haldane. Um, when I heard her singing this Handel program, I said to her, I've never heard Handel sung so beautifully. And she said, oh, well, if you want, if you want to hear something else, come to the Faculty of Music next week. I'm singing Goodbye Dulina. <laughs> and she, I, I did, and she was singing this, this unaccompanied solo by, by Sophia Goodbye Dulina. And you know, she had completely refit her voice to the scale of Goodbye Dulina from, from Handel, being, being Handel, magnificently so. And in the Russian, you know, it was it was a scaled down, lean, uh, agonizing uh, voice filled with pathos. And here I realized we've got a singer, a very intelligent, very creative performer who who knows the difference between Handel and Gubatilia. Oh, you know, well, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't you? But still, we responded to it so brilliantly, and. We struck up a friendship, and she started. She she mentioned her poet father, and I I kind of was interested. You have a father who writes poetry. Oh, has anyone ever said this poetry? No. Oh, well, I looked it up on the on, on online. A few of his poems were available. Beautiful poems. Uh, I said to her, I really like your dad's poetry. Uh, you think he would mind if I wanted to ask for permission to set some of these? Uh, she said, well, you know, I'm doing a French program, and uh, he's coming to hear it. I'm going to be back at the Arts and Letters Club. Uh, why don't you come, and you, we'll, we'll see that you meet. Well, that was, that was easy, because I, I went that day, and I went, to, to the bar at the Arts and Letters Club, and I could tell this gentleman holding a pint of ale and speaking and intoning his British-sounding <laughs> voice, I said, and looking as he looked, I said, you wouldn't be Sean Haldane, would you? He said, I am. I said, I just told, told the whole story, you know, from, from Handel to Goodbye Lena, and actually, what we were about to discover as she sang her French program, you know, of, of Melodie, uh, she had recast her voice yet again. You know, that kind of closed sound that they make in, in Melodie, in, in, the, in, in French repertoire, uh, not always open, just very intimate and, and contained. Um, you know, I, I just can't say enough about Christina's uh, skills and 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 talents as 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 a vocal performer. She's a wonderful, wonderful artist. But I I said to I said on that occasion I said to Sean, well, you know, you don't know me from the next guy. You've never heard a note of my music. Why don't I do this? Why don't I just uh, 
choose one of your shorter poems, and I'll just write you a sample setting. You know, I'll send it to you. Tell me, is it terrible? You know, what? How do you like it? What? What? So this was in, um, I think November of of twenty seventeen. I had the piece. I I chose a, a little poem. It's I think um, seven or eight lines. It was called Weltschmerz. You know, pain of the world. And. Uh, you know, and it starts. It starts with pain in the world, Feldschmerz. So, yeah, there's a clear melody there, absolutely. And it's and it's a and it's a, a big register spread, and it's and and it'll be virtuoso singing from the very first phrase. So I sent him this this setting. He loved it. This was in December of twenty. 17 by February the following year he was sending me poems saying please set this so, <laughs> so here started a, a really beautiful relationship a friendship and uh, I eventually produced a cycle of six unaccompanied songs for Christina which she recorded on her her debut album um, nice nice but then Sean introduced me to his friend David Cameron a Scottish poet living in Northern Ireland and brought me his book of collected poems. And I gotta tell you, you know, things clicked with Sean, things really clicked with David. I've, I've probably set between 30 and 40 of David's poems now. And, wow. um, and we have projects ongoing. Many of them are unaccompanied. There are some accompanied things as well. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, but the interesting thing was that as I got deeper and deeper into setting text and really being moved emotionally and inspired by this beautiful use of, of the English language, eventually I, I, I discovered if I was going to write any instrumental music, like it was coming from the same sources. And in both ways, like, like borrowing melodies I had written for the voice but also with original melody, with no vocal connection, uh, just uh, melody growing out of the poetry. So right now I'm, I'm able to tell you that almost 100% almost of the music I'm writing today is text-inspired. Mm -hmm. And I know it's, it's one of the many you know, infinite possibilities of how, how to proceed with, with composition. But for me, right now, uh, this is how it's working. And uh, uh, my good friend Olivia Esther um, heard Karen Usha, the soprano, singing a big dramatic aria of, with David's poetry, a piece called In the Forest. And I said, would you like one of those? She said, yes. <laughs> so we're now in the process. <laughs> David is sharing poetry with her. She's selecting poems that relate to her life on a very personal mm -hmm. level. And I'm writing a horn solo telling a story. So the horn as the poet, the horn as the narrator. It's amazing to hear how you continue to grow and grow and grow. Uh, it's super yeah. inspiring. Yeah, that's what I'm... To, to I'm having hear. a blast. Yeah. <laughs> what can we I say? Can I can tell. We can tell. <laughs> we can tell, David. <laughs> and, and you know, you know the, the, the upside of this is that uh, when I'm really lucky, you know, I've created enough repertoire for, for an album, you know, and the artist comes to me and says, I'd really like to record this. Would you mind producing it for me? <laughs> yes, your in-house production yeah. team. So Perfect. we have some fun that way, too. Yeah, sure. <laughs> David, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing uh, your multiple stories uh, of your amazing multiple lives with us. It has been a pure pleasure. Thank you for asking. Thank you for inviting me in. It's been fun we, to talk. We can't wait to hear more of your music, more yeah. of your new music. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, David. So good to see you. You've been listening to New Musings on New Music. 
Check our podcast website for links to music and more information about our guests and conversations. Don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and podcast news. Suddenly Listen acknowledges the support of Arts Nova Scotia and the Canadian Music Centre in the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening.